0: The solution to the problems that aristotle finds himself in he, he articulates the natural aspect just perfectly he, he didn't count on and nobody was there to tell him about the the beauty of grace and and the friendship of christ
1: all right everybody what's going on so i am here with colin redimer colin colin is a professor at saint mary's he's also the vp of the davenant institute which is very interesting creative educational initiative which maybe we'll talk about at the end actually kind of dovetails with you know some of the initiatives i'm working on in my community but the main reason i'm interested in talking with colin today is that colin is a scholar of aristotelian ethics among other things he's a real expert in this area and i've known colin for a little while now through the internet mostly but it seems to me that there is kind of increasing awareness but also increasing dissatisfaction with kind of the reign of contemporary rationalist consequentialism and there is a kind of rising feeling of of interest and curiosity about other ethical paradigms for instance virtue ethics Aristotelian ethics. Sometimes these things are used interchangeably, but there are fine distinctions uh, between these these different categories. And so it seems to me that this is an area that's very much in need of exploring and in need of more sophisticated analysis and reflection. And so that's why I invited Colin on. Colin, thanks so much for coming on the Other Life podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, great
0: to to be here. You Long time fan, first time guest.
1: Okay, awesome. I Appreciate that. Very happy to have you. I think this is a, a conversation that a lot of people are interested in. Uh, but for some reason, it seems to me like a lot of people kind of remember reading Plato in their undergrad years, or maybe even in their graduate school years, and maybe you know people have been exposed to Aristotle to some degree. But it seems to me that there's just like a, a big gap in a kind of awareness or true kind of learned. Um, understanding of the Aristotelian kind of viewpoint when it comes to ethics. People seem to be more familiar with kind of the platonic perspective. So why don't we just start with, you know, give us your elevator pitch. What is, what is the, the essence of Aristotelian ethics? Um, how would you summarize it?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I wonder how many people actually read Plato in those classes and and how many of them were reading like a textbook that had a page about Plato, uh, which, which I find is much more the case for your undergrad philosophy courses. Um, you know, so Actually, one of the only things I remember from Philosophy 101, speaking of Philosophy 101, is my professor wrote on the board SPA, S P A A. Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great conquered the world, and that's why Greek matters, basically. Um, and and that, I think that's a, a helpful introduction because we tend to think that there's like Plato on the one hand, you know, doing, doing this Platonic idealist thing, and then you've got Aristotle on the other hand doing, you know, something else. It's, it's not exactly clear what, it's much less sort of. Um, simplifiable to 140 characters or something um but if you if you think about the fact that this guy actually studied with plato i think it makes you realize you should generally try to imagine this person as trying to extend the work of their teacher right so this is not there was no sort of major break there was no sort of profound repudiation the way nietzsche you know like repudiates wagner or whatever um you know rather this is somebody who's trying to carry on the same basic form of life uh, and so that socrates to plato to aristotle sort of chain of transmission is a, is a valuable way of thinking about it. In the, in the famous painting, right, you have Plato pointing with one finger up. It's like he's, he's interested in one thing, like being, the ideals, and it's up there. It's sort of outside of the world. And Aristotle has uh, a hand like this, and there's five things he's pointing to, and they're all down here low. Um, that's the dichotomy that you were probably taught if you learned both, you know, from your textbook. When, when you actually get into Plato's or Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean Ethics, which is his most famous ethical work of the three ethical works that are generally attributed to either Aristotle or, or near, near contemporary. Um, I think what you find is actually something much more similar to a theory of life that you could deduce out of Plato's dialogues if you wanted to. The problem is the form that they wrote in is so radically different that it's hard to ever make one-to-one comparisons, right? Plato wrote these more, they read like plays if you've never read one. It's, it's dialogic, right? It's two guys talking to each other. It's a group of people having an argument. And, and actually, Plato is never a character in any of those arguments. He always attributes the argument to someone else, Socrates' teacher or some random person. Aristotle didn't write that way, and it's debatable what the writings we have are. He he did have some dialogues. Those are lost to history. Those are not what he's famous for. He's famous for writing these books, um, which many people think are read read like lecture notes. I, I, I tend to sort of think that there's at least one other good theory, which is that they are well-constructed arguments in and of themselves and could be read as sort of conversations with Plato um, if you wanted to. But there's a sort of silent dialogue partner on the other side. You have to read it. So it does still read a little bit as a lecture, uh, but it's more it's more didactic. It's less playful. Uh, most people think, and therefore, I think maybe the other reason why people are less familiar with them is, I, I you know, a tendency is if you put both of them in front of somebody, you read Plato's Apology, you read Aristotle's Nic- Nicomachean Ethics. People are more likely to finish the Apology, right? The Ethics feels a little bit trickier.
1: Yeah, well, it's a little drier, right? The the Platonic dialogues are a little bit more fun. The, you know, the Apology. It's like a it's like a, a wild suspenseful story in a way, right? Whereas you know, read I was rereading the Nicomachean Ethics for this interview, and yeah, it's a, it's a much harder slog. It's 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 boring, right? It's dry. There's a lot of kind of uh, logical analysis where it's not really clear exactly how this is going to cash out or why it's interesting. But of course, that's why you're here with us today. So yeah, give us get, help us cut through that noise, and you know, for someone slogging through the Nicomachean Ethics uh, and find you know, kind of struggling to find the upshot. You know what 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 is it how how would you how would you summarize it?
0: yeah I, I would say that the summary of the Nicomachean ethics is an attempt to think through well so the the first step is you know you have to say who is Nicomachus and Nicomachus so Nicomachus is a name so the Nicomachean is the this person's ethics, right? Nicomachus is either his father or his son, and there's some debate about who who's writing it to, but I don't even think the debate matters because that right there tells you something, right? He's trying to say, this is an ethics that's sort of passed down generation to generation. <clears throat> and then you have, the next question is, what is ethics? And we and most people tend to think about ethics in terms of either, there's like a list of rules you're supposed to follow. Um, you know, this is like what your priest told you, or your pastor told you, or or your parents. Or you think of ethics, uh, and we'll get into this as, you know, more, more utilitarian, or, you know, a stoic way of life or whatever. And, and he thinks that ethics is ultimately... Um, a search for the meaning of human life. So it's, it's particular to humans. And what he's trying to do in the, in the ethics in particular is think through what the point of human life is. And the Greek term for point there is telos. And it's, it's like purposive. It's, um, it's like the, the telos of archery, right? Is to hit the, the, the center of the target. So what's the center of the target that human lives are trying to hit? And, and ultimately, therefore, I think from the Aristotelian perspective, you need to think about ethics in terms of excellence. So what he's trying to articulate then in, is, say, human lives and, and human language necessitate that there's certain things we're aiming at and certain things we're not aiming at. And how do you articulate what the aim, the, the end point, the target, what is that little red dot in the middle of the target? you know, for the kind of thing that you are. Um, and he says that that's happiness. And so right there, I'm just summarizing the first two books. So he calls them books. We would, they look like chapters to us, right? But it's like book one and book two, sort of like books of the Bible. Um, and, and happiness is really what you're aiming at every action that you've ever taken, you're taking, aiming to to get happiness. You want happiness.
1: Now, to be clear, though, happiness is not necessarily what people today would think of when they think of happiness. Is that right? We're talking about the Greek term eudaimonia. Is that right? Maybe you could expand on some of the differences between the concept of eudaimonia and the more modern kind of bourgeois conception of happiness.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he actually goes over this, too. So, uh, you know, one of the, you know, why, why read Aristotle? Because I, I think he's articulated most of the arguments you're going to run into in life. I rarely, having read Aristotle pretty closely for many years, I feel like I've read most of the arguments I, I run into in like my day-to-day life. And so you sort of hit an argument and you're like, oh, I know this argument. You know, you're arguing that happiness is just pleasure. Um, you know, he, he says happiness can't just be pleasure. Well, it can be. But if happiness is just pleasure, if you think happiness is just the, the physical pleasures of your body, you know, I'm, I've got a basset hound sitting here right next to me. He's a pretty happy being right. But, but the happiness of a basset hound is like getting enough food, being touched appropriately, like getting enough exercise and then being left alone. So you can sleep and that's a happy basset hound life, but it's just in, in Aristotle's terms, this is the happiness of cows and you're just clearly more than a cow, you, you, to be happy, you have to be able to achieve and actualize the potencies, the potentials that are inside of you, right? And humans have all these potentials that that cows and, and basset hounds don't have, and and the highest point of that, therefore, the, the greatest distinction between my basset hound and me is that when I read poetry, you know, to my wife, my wife responds with words, and when I read poetry to my basset hound, he just goes, you know, he's, there's no, it doesn't compute. So you have to engage the rational faculty in order to get happiness. His term, therefore, as you pointed out, is eudaimonia. Um, and you know, how we translate eudaimonia is, depending on, on your translation. It could be happiness, it could be flourishing, you know, human flourishing. If you hear people talking about human flourishing, they tend to be, have Aristotle in the back of their mind, or they're reading somebody who does, um, or, you know, one of the ways that I, I think it could be translated well, but it also has its problems is blessedness. Um, you know, the one problem with that is he he doesn't have in mind the Christian conceptions that we would have when we say the word blessedness. but but I think it's a, a helpful word because it has the sense of fulsomeness. It has a sense of spiritedness. There's something beyond just the material that comes when you think about blessedness. Um, and and
1: yeah, I find that very fascinating because, a, I've never really heard that, and b blessedness just sounds and feels very different than happiness and flourishing because you you described it well, but it also has this connotation of a a sort of, um, you know, uh, endorsement from on high, right? To be blessed, to be blessed. So how does that fit in?
0: Yeah. Now he does say uh, another argument he gives against you, which would, which would count against using blessedness is Happiness. Some people want to argue happiness is just a gift of the gods. That it's just, you know, some people get it, some people don't. M- you know, maybe to translate that into mar- modern parlance, you know, there's there's some data out there that say like, you know, depression or whatever is genetic, and and you know, therefore, happiness, the inverse of depression, is probably also partially informed by genetics. And so maybe this is just a random a, a random gift. And he says, actually, he says there's something to that. You know, some people just get a better lot in life than other people but that's not what you mean when you say the word happiness, because if that's what you mean, then you have no reason for activity. Um, if blessed, if, if happiness for a dog is just random, predetermined based upon who their owner is, they wouldn't you know, go in search of food and dig around in the garbage. Uh, and so you don't actually behave in your day-to-day life as if uh, happiness is random. So I, I say blessedness uh, simply to distinguish it, because what we mean by happiness tends to mean, you know, like a, your serotonin levels, and, and blessedness implies something more fulsome. And so it's like flourishing. Um, he, he thinks that happiness is an activity. Here's his quote. Happiness is an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. So the key distinguisher there is that it's something you actually do. Happiness is not passive. You don't just sit there and happiness comes to you. It has to do with your choices. It has to do with your actions in life. Um, and, and there's a measure that you're trying to measure up against, right? There's the the target at the end that you're trying to point towards.
1: Okay, got it. And so to achieve this ideal state of flourishing or eudaimonia or blessedness, it has something to do with living in accordance with one's highest potential, living a life of excellence. And we'll try to unpack that a little bit more in just a minute. But I think an interesting question to, to insert here is why can it not be the case that the most excellent way to live is to simply you know increase the you know maximize the greatest good for for the greatest number of people why, why can't that be the appropriate way to live excellent excellently
0: yeah well you, you know first of all to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number of people implies that those are not agents and so one of the problems you find when when people do contemporary ethical reflection is uh and you see this a lot among i mean it's a lot of moderns and like it just slaps you in the face when you're reading marxists because the, the conceptualization they have is that there's some good we can articulate out there. And then there's some group of people who are in the way of the achieving of that good. And um, if you try to think through it on a, on a meta ethical level, the, you know, one of the first questions you have to ask is, is ethics a discipline that is about uh, solving problems for humans, or is it solving problems Uh, Or or does it conceive of humans as sometimes being the problem that needs to be solved for? And uh, virtue ethics would say, the the virtue ethics tradition would say, no, 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 humans are that for which the problem gets solved. So you can't begin by saying, we want to articulate this thing, but you're not going to factor in as a choosing being. Um, Another way to to put that that I've, I've talked about is, You know imagine that we could and and this is like very relevant stuff and i think your listeners are gonna dig it like imagine we could put you in a cage uh that's like invisible it would just your whole body would fit right into it and it would lay you down and wake you up and have you go about your motions in exactly the perfect way predetermined you know would we call you a good ethical being if if it was if you were not making the decisions for yourself even though your body was perfectly fit you were getting the right amount of exercise you're sort of killing it at work typing your little emails you know maybe it's even writing your emails for you so you can like spend your time reading poetry i don't know we can like you know make it up, up however we want aristotelian ethics would say you're not happy because you're not choosing
1: i see so the real problem or error of consequentialist ethics is that from out of the gate it treats humans as objects to be calculated whereas object humans are not primarily objects to be calculated that the real problem of ethics is essentially a a kind of singular puzzle that we face as as acting agents and we we need we need to figure out ways to act ways to conduct ourselves and never into that equation do we enter some variable where like other humans as objects need to be manipulated that just doesn't enter the equation in virtue ethics is that one way to put it
0: that's a great way to put it. And, and I would say before you act, uh, act, you have to choose. And before you choose, you have to think. And so therefore the, the reason Aristotle's writing the book for you then is to help your thinking. He's trying to um, help you conceptualize the various problems you run into in life and, and certain necessary features of your reality so that as you go about making your choices and acting, you do so in a way that actually is gonna be conducive to your happiness at the end, right? You are yourself an end. Um, you're not a cog in a machine and consequentialist ethics ultimately puts you in the position of, of the cog. I see.
1: Okay. And so we're already kind of slipping between Aristotelian ethics and virtue ethics. Are these interchangeable? Are there differences there? Um, how, how would you parse these different categories that we're already kind of moving, moving between?
0: Yeah, I think, I think, you know, from Aristotle's perspective, it would be kind of a funny question because he was just doing ethics, right? Um, there was no, there was no category for virtue ethics. He's just, you know, writing, it. he's like, let me write a book about ethics. Like this is clearly what ethics is. Um, when Aristotle, uh, gets inherited by the, you know, the Western tradition, as well as certain folks in the Eastern tradition, certain Islamic thinkers, um. You know, he's clearly not alone. There's other people who are writing ethics that are sort of like his, but aren't exactly like his. You can think of certain Stoic ethicists who, who, you know, Cicero maybe. And so then the question is, is there some umbrella category? And so virtue ethics tends to be the name for the category of ethicists who think in terms of virtue, um, of whom there are many, many people. But it really almost died out. Nobody was; it wasn't a living tradition, or very, very mildly, kind of only in like the Roman Catholic ghetto and, and certain other places. Um, so certain Christians maintained it longer than others, but in academic philosophy, it was basically gone until the twentieth century. For I don't know, maybe it was gone for about one hundred years until in the twentieth century, G.M. Um, Anscombe really made some some hard hitting analytic arguments saying this is a viable option, you know. You know, modern ethics has kind of run into a corner, or or one might say shoved its head up its own ass. And, and like, you know, we can go back to Aristotle and, and this older tradition to find a way through.
1: Okay, that's fascinating. Um, I, I don't generally hear the name Anscombe discussed. I'm sure that's my own ignorance. So this is the student of Wittgenstein. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, okay, so that, let's maybe return to that because that's a very interesting thread I want to pick back up on when we maybe later in the discussion talk about sure. more more contemporary theories. That's fascinating. I, I don't know much about that. Maybe I want to talk about this kind of core idea of excellence, which looms so large in all of this, which you've mentioned already. And you know, when you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, one thing you quickly feel or notice in addition to the fact that it is rather dry and a little bit more difficult to read than some of Plato's more famous dialogues is that he's a very practical thinker. It's a very practical theory. And for people who have a taste for more kind of categorical, absolute kind of imperative styles, Aristotle, you know, one critique would be that it, feel, it can feel a little wishy-washy, right? Sometimes he's quoted as the idea of being, you know, right thing at the right time in the right way. So it's very yeah. kind of context dependent. It's very practical. This could be seen as sort of wishy-washy. I wanna ask you kind of, how do you know when you're really living in accordance with excellence or or when you're not like what what are some some you know of the best guideposts for for distinguishing when you're doing that well or when you're failing to do that
0: yeah so if at the beginning of the book he's he's like the point of human life is happiness and then he's like well then we have to figure out what happiness is and he says it's an activity um happiness an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue the next question then of course is like well what is virtue and then and then what you're saying how do you live that out how do you know it and um, you know, if virtue arete is the the Greek term he's using is just excellence, how do you then go from there to like applying it to my life to being excellent? Um, as you say, you know, how do you avoid the wishy-washiness? And, and I think he's got a, a number of different ways. To begin, we should give his definition of virtue. Um, virtue is the habit of choosing the mean between two vices, and that's moral virtue. So there's different kinds of virtue, right? He would say there's certain virtues that that you don't bother with because they're virtues relative to something besides choice so like he thinks <laughs> you know just to give an example and and he's he's not bound by our sort of contemporary pc uh rules so you know he says like if you want to be beautiful you have to be very large you know if small people can't be beautiful they can only be cute um and what he means by that uh and so you know this is funny in part because like my wife is very small. I think she's beautiful, but sorry, you know, wife, uh Aristotle would just say you're cute. Um uh but that's, you know, more for me, right? Um when what he means there is he's saying there's certain virtues which we're not really going to talk about because they're like that happiness that some people have just because they're given it. It's like well, that's not really happiness. That's some other good thing. And it is a good thing. He's not denying it. Um like he says, better to be, be- you know large because you can be beautiful. Um, so, you know, if you're, we would say like, maybe there's certain really high intelligence people, maybe there's certain people that are extremely fast, these are virtues, right? But they're, we don't call them moral virtues, because moral virtues are things we want to praise you or blame you for. We don't praise you for being larger than somebody else. We don't praise you for happening, you know, if you happen to be, you know, a chess prodigy at birth. Right. Um, so what do we praise and blame you for? We praise and blame you for choices. And he, he, he posits a, a, a couple of different theories to help you. And one of which is, it's the habit of choosing the mean or the middle ground between two vices. Um, and, you know, language itself seems to point in this direction. And so just think about like how to dress. And this isn't even a virtue that he talks about, but we can just apply his thinking to like, how should we dress, right? Um, He, he says anything that involves a human choice where there's an excellence, there's going to be a middle position between two opposing positions. And so the two opposing positions and how to dress, like if on the one hand, you've got a schlub, you know, you don't want to be a schlub, Justin, (laughs) you know, everybody knows what that is. It's like, you know, you've got the mustard stain. You're not like, none of it fits. It's just like stuff you found in the gutter. On the other hand like what's what's the opposite extreme of a schlub that's like you've gone too far in the other direction being like
1: a a a, a snob or something
0: sure yeah yeah you're snob you're you're like you're way overdoing it you know you're looking down your nose at everybody else they're not wearing you know giorgio armani i'm not even a good dresser so i don't know the names for like what they would (laughs) be looking for and so a good dresser is somebody who's in the middle and um and then he says now the the next thing you can do is you can say Ask yourself relative to this virtue, are most people, just if you had to like, you, you know, make a bet, you know, 100, for $100, are most people more likely to overdo it or are most pe- people more likely to underdo it? And if most people are more likely to overdo it, you should probably pull back a little bit. And if most people are more likely to underdo it, you should push push more to this side over here. Um, you know, and and sometimes those are going to be relatively balanced out. And so you want to aim right for the middle of the crew. Um, and sometimes it's going to be obvious. And so here's, here's another example. Let's take the pleasure of, um, I like to use cigarettes because this one triggers the students. Uh, it, you know, there's, if there's a virtue in smoking cigarettes, you know, uh, clearly there's a space between smoking all the cigarettes and dying of lung cancer or suffocating or something and smoking none of the cigarettes where you don't get any of the pleasure so, like, what is what is the appropriate amount? Are more people likely to overdo it or underdo it? And then you need to learn from the crowd by pulling the opposite direction.
1: I don't okay. know. What do you think? It's fascinating. I mean, I'm curious why one would index against what is popular at the time. What is the logic for that, right? Because at different times and places, it's going to change, right? So is i guess by implication there's some sort of social component to 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 what is virtuous so for instance the the smoking example is a fascinating one because maybe in the middle of the 20th century you should have erred against it it was popular seen as normal but maybe not wise so maybe in the early you know in the middle of the 20th century the virtuous thing to do would be to not smoke or to go r- really light on the smoking but nowadays when it's villainized and everyone is so obsessed with you know their own longevity and protecting themselves perhaps you could make the case that society has gone too far into this kind of safety ideology, and now the right thing to do would be to smoke more cigarettes. <laughs> so, that's ex- right. Explain the social element to to what it means to be virtuous.
0: But, but I submit that you you would um, you would end up smoking roughly the same amount, which is interesting, right? Because you know when everybody's smoking a ton, you don't want to smoke none. The parsimonious person who just refuses to enjoy the pleasures of life is clearly failing in some way. Right, um, and so you wouldn't smoke none. But then, when everybody's being parsimonious, you know, you you're not going to smoke all the cigarettes and die of lung cancer because clue that person's made a you know a boneheaded move. But you'd smoke some.
1: So it, okay, interesting. Right. So yeah. the the right answer is smoke a little, smoke a little bit. That's smoke a little bit. <laughs> virtuous, a little bit. Yeah. I think
0: that's the that's the virtuous mean. That's the golden mean that he's shooting for. And and you know, I think the feature that you're noticing, this kind of social feature, is that the virtuous person by nature of being excellent, right? Excellence is not common. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, Aristotle is one of those people who is sort of getting cold from curricula, Uh, he's, um, if he was ever in it, you know, virtue ethics is not something that's kind of popular uh, with the political left. And I think it makes sense because he's clearly on the side of excellence, which is, if not the individual, at least it's rare. So he does not want what
1: is common. Hmm.
0: And that's, that's why you can always kind of revolve
1: around the many. So I feel like a lot of people listening to this are going to be thinking, wait a second, if you want to be excellent, shouldn't you go extra hard on that, which you know, to be good and extra hard against that, which you know, to be bad. So for instance, to stick with the smoking example, because I think it's, it is, it's good because it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. I think a lot of people are listening, thinking, we know that smoking is very bad for you. We know that there are really no upsides to it so the truly excellent person will not do it whatsoever you know how do you how do you how do you think that through uh, even if you kind of buy into the logic a bit of of aristotle's intuitions how do we know when we are you know going for the mean between vices versus when we're actually we're just rationalizing our own you know lack of willpower and you know petty selfish desires
0: Yes, and and so there's a good argument to be had there, and I think any reasonable Aristotelian, such as myself, would be open to it. You know, there's a question of should the should the virtuous person smoke at all? Um, you know, there are other texts he would talk to this question with, where he would ask, is it a natural pleasure or not? I, I don't know if we want to go there; it's a little bit, you know, that's the like deep tracks version of this talk. Yeah. Um. But the w- the one quick thing I can say in response is he he does say there are many things which permit of no mean. Where there's no moderate quantity, where there's no middle road, Um, and again, you know this because of the language. So just as we could begin with schlub, and get to like some virtue relative to dressing, so too, if we talk about murder, like what's the right quantity of murder? You know, what's the you know what? How do we murder in the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons? Just murder the right people, you know. And now we really sound like Marxists. Um, And uh, and and I, you know, he's gonna say it's there are certain words where intrinsic to the word is the implication that this is an activity that permits of no mean and that's why we have a distinction between killing and murder a distinction between sex and adultery um and and, and a, a distinction between taking and theft there's a certain moderate quantity of taking right there's no moderate quantity of theft
1: fascinating so yeah it's almost a kind of linguistic criterion that's fascinating and so Okay. I guess, I mean, another question though, that I think a lot of people will have is if you're just trying to prevent yourself from going down the extremes of these different vices and you're constantly looking for the mean or the average between pitfalls, is this not a recipe for a life of mediocrity? To a lot of people, this is like the opposite of excellence. If you're, if you're always just kind of, you know, hedging your bets.
0: Yeah. I, you know, he would say, this is something that you do on a mental level. This is like to help you with your thinking, but ultimately you do not want to aim away. You're not just aiming away from the crowd, right? It's not pure contrarianism, even though on a mental level, it kind of looks that way. So he really does think you're aiming for virtues and therefore you need to mentally identify the virtues and then try to hit them. And, um, you know, the second tool that he has uh, that, that virtue ethicists sort of take out of Aristotle is this concept of a moral exemplar. And so you need some image in your mind of a human life that hit the mark, or at least hit the mark relative to this one activity. And so if you want to go back to smoking, you, you might say like, okay, you just think of the people you know who died of emphysema or whatever, cancer, I don't know what they die of, but it's bad. And then, you know, think about the people who just, you know, refuse to ever be around smoking and they're just completely insufferable. Do you know anybody who hit the mark who just they're not smoking on a regular basis, but if somebody offers them a cigarette, they're not going to say no, you know, they hold the cigarette. Well, they look good with the cigarette, you know, but they don't make it a habit. They're not smokers on a regular basis. And that would be a moral exemplar. And maybe that's, you know, a stupid example. So you take a better example, take something like courage, you know, somebody who's not ever willing to sacrifice their life for anything is a craven coward. They're pathetic individual, and you should not make them your moral exemplar, right? On the other hand, somebody who's just rushes off into battle and gets himself killed, has screwed up in some significant ways, or who dies in battle for the wrong reasons, you know, this is not a moral exemplar. Who's the person who knows? And so courage is you know, knowing how to risk your life for the right reason at the right time in the right way, and thinking about people who did that, took that risk, um, and making those your lodestar and trying to aim your life at them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how you're using biography as an example here, because it, it does feel like in the Nicomachean ethics, there is this sense that ethics is kind of like an art form. It's like the art of life, and you have to study other artists of life. Uh, and there, because there's a lot of, stuff in there around habit and around, oh, and around he names kind of people, yeah. I mean, he, right. you know,
0: in the thing, he'll be like, you know, if seven pounds of meat was too much for Milo or too, too little for me, but too much, or what was it? It's too little for Milo and too much for me. Uh, Milo being a great wrestler who was like a huge dude. And so, you know, you can tell he's thinking about these particular
1: individuals. Right. So it's, it's this interesting kind of game of thinking, thinking about life as an art and comparing to previous exemplars. There's also this element of, you know, kind of passed down knowledge, as you talked about with the, the very title of the book. Um, and so it's it's a very different just sense of what ethics is that compared to the more kind of now dominant rationalist utilitarian sense of ethics as this kind of like mathematical public ledger where you can, everyone can kind of judge the ethical performance of of different actors and agents. It's almost like the way you're describing Aristotle ethics is it's almost like this very singular personal thing that can't really be placed on this objective public ledger for everyone to intersubjectively analyze. Am I onto something here? Like is it a very is it is it necessarily a kind of singular personal groping in the dark to which we as a society can never fully in a universalizable way judge?
0: Absolutely. I, I think Aristotle can, can take certain insights into contemporary psychology, which, you know, I don't know if you believe them or if you're do, to but let's just presume that it's true that some people are more prone to addiction. Um, you know, if that's the case, you don't judge or blame those people for their proneness to addiction, but you judge, you praise or blame them for what they do in the world with what they're given. And I, I think it really is when you, when you talk to people about this as ethical as the sort of basis of ethics is You're not just a product of some system or culture. You are in part a product of some system or culture clearly, right? The processes of biology have brought you here on some level, but you also have a certain agency inside of that and you have to move and choose and, and, you know, fine tune your thinking, uh, in that way. I, I think there's also something about, you know, like Renee Girard's insights into human motivation and activity. You just are going to pick someone to model your life after. Um, you are going to take other people's language and make it your own language, other people's behaviors and make it your behaviors. I, I think about the the contemporary phenomenon. I don't know if you saw this where like young women in particular are starting to like develop Tourette's because they follow people who have Tourette's on you, you know, TikTok or whatever. And it's like, you know, this social contagion version of these things. This is just gonna happen to you. And therefore, you know, one one way to read Aristotle is to say, you better think really hard about who you want to make those models in your life uh, because they're going to have a huge impact. And if, you know, if you've got bad models, you can end up as a bad person.
1: Right. Right. That's fascinating. So part of it is selecting your models. One question, one interesting kind of segue here is into the Christian tradition. There is a strong kind of Aristotelian strand to the history of Catholic theology you're protestant yourself uh, but you kind of are very interested in this aristotelian strand in Christianity as well and in fact yeah you have a book coming out about protestant aristotelianism so th- there's there's a kind of aristotelian lineage running through the catholic and the protestant traditions Christianity as a whole what does that add or what does it draw on like what is the nexus there how how would you pinpoint the the commonality or the overlap and 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 what's going on there
0: yeah i mean the the traditional way of talking about this would be to say that grace perfects nature so we have some natural substrata that is common to all humans and and philosophy is the exploration of that strata and the and maybe the the questioning about what might be beyond it right that'd be metaphysics um but then what what revelation does what Christian theology does is makes the claim that God has given us certain answers to these questions about metaphysics about the reality beyond our reality. But grace that those answers God gives us this power of God that sort of descends with the Holy Spirit into our lives it doesn't just like it's not like an acid that like lands on your body and dissolves you so you're like no longer there and then you can like beam yourself up to the mothership or whatever. Um, you know, that's like, you know, strange cultic Gnosticism or, you know, whatever it rather grace shows up and it sees nature and it recognizes natural, right. To a certain extent that nature just is a certain way and it, it adds a certain perfection to it without destroying it or corrupting it. And therefore when, when Christians come in and start thinking ethically about life they look at the major, the four cardinal virtues that Aristotle identifies as the the hinge of life, right? The most important virtues are uh, moderation relative to your pleasures, courage relative to your fear of death, um, wisdom, uh, which is about knowledge of the whole and how to act inside of the whole, what my part is, right? Self-knowledge. And then justice is how do I organize myself internally and organize my relations to things external to myself? Those are the four cardinal virtues. Those are the natural virtues. Aristotle thinks every culture that has ever existed can deduce and has deduced these things. I agree with him. Uh, I think if you read Confucianism, you'll be shocked at the overlaps between you know Confucianism and Aristotelianism. I could give you some literature if you want on that. Um, what Christianity adds is that this is this is not the end of virtue. And Aristotle knew that, and he postulates what what happens after you've got these virtues? What else is there? He has certain theories, and he kind of goes into it. And uh, he, you know, his big theory is friendship. This is sort of where it all leads. And Christianity says, yes, but you don't know the nature of that friendship, Aristotle. The nature of that friendship is love, and it's a loving relationship with God. And so grace takes that natural substrata and perfects it. Um, and so Aristotle has always been, you know, not always, but but the either Aristotle or Plato have always been welcome in the in the Christian community of churches. Uh, and different points in times, you know, one of those people takes more precedence than another. The other.
1: Well, one thing that I think it's easy for people to see is that the Aristotelian emphasis on there is a certain nature to human being. We have natural orientations there is something such as flourishing, it is possible to say that human beings are either being more or less excellent to the degree they are more or less fully expressing what it is their nature to express. To a lot of people today, this language just sounds kind of Christian, right? Um, And so that I think makes a lot of sense. One interesting question though, is the question around the telos, because I think, again, when you it's easy to see that Christianity is filled with teleology. There's both kind of the historical teleology of, uh, you know, where our, where everything is going and, and all of that, of course, but there's also a strong kind of teleology in, in the sense of our ultimate ends in terms of our behavior and our values. Um, so it's easy to see the teleology in Christian in Christianity, but for someone like Aristotle in this kind of pre-Christian period, like what was the ultimate Telos like how how did how did Aristotle think if Telos looms large in his sense of you know human ethics, what was that ultimate Telos for Aristotle before christianity
0: yeah I mean the the I think the way to answer that you would have answered that question if you were in Athens you know right before Socrates came on the scene or maybe even after Socrates, which is why they killed him, would be to say that Achilles was the Telos right. Um, and so undying fame among mortals was like what Achilles was going for. Uh, and he's the, the legendary hero in the Iliad that, that Homer wrote.
1: Sure. So glory, Um, glory, basically.
0: Yeah. Glory. And, uh, when, when Socrates comes on the scene and at least in Plato's depictions, he actually explicitly presents himself as the new or better hero of the Athenian peoples. And so it's the wiz, the wise man or the wizard, you know, who's, who, who has, is the kind of hero of the human mind, as opposed to the hero of the human body. Um, And Aristotle, uh, one way of reading him is as trying to synthesize those two and saying, you know, you don't sacrifice the material body to the mind. uh, And and maybe he's even correcting people who think that's what Plato is talking about, right? So maybe his analysis of Plato would be to say that, no, actually, you know, Socrates really was a warrior. Like he really did fight in the battles uh, of the Athenian state. Um, and we don't sacrifice those things, but rather also, in doing that, we don't we can't sacrifice this rational faculty and the exercise and perfection of it. And so what you're looking for is this habit, this way of living, this routineized way of of making decisions and and allowing yourself the space to express all of these potentials uh, and and ultimately it's going to look like a life in community with your your city your family and close friends where you're engaged in this conversation that is itself sort of the further perfection of the human life because you're exploring knowledge and, and virtue and knowledge are somehow tied up together so that when you get the one you get the other
1: so it's a very kind of almost communitarian mental model here. It's like day in and day out, one lives in a certain way. Once one commits to certain habits of mind and habits of behavior, which are strongly linked to the people around you, They're, they're kind of naturally embedded in the relationships you have with the actual people in your life, not like far off you know, um, calculations you're making about global populations or something like this, but the actual people you see on a daily basis, because that's what habit is indexed to, right? You can only have habits in relation to the people you're actually living with in some degree. So again, we start to see how this kind of perspective excludes some of the more cosmopolitan rationalist frames for, for ethical thinking. Um, am I, but he's going to, yes, but
0: he's going to say that there's a sort of natural sorting that's going to happen because as you pursue excellence and as you gain excellence, because you're going to sort of get better at some of these things, you know, you'll naturally, there's a certain natural sorting that is going to happen where you're going to be interested in continuing to talk to, and think of it like wrestling, right? I always, I, I think wrestling and chess are kind of two great, uh, you know, analogies for, for the philosophical life. If you're getting better at wrestling and I was a wrestler, You know, you, you eventually can't train with the starting people, right? You have to like the black belts have to train with the black belts. If they go train with the white belts, they can do that from time to time. But they're doing that as like an act of service to the white belts. It's not making the black belt better. Um, and virtue is going to function kind of like that. So you are doing it in relationship to your city and you do have a certain commonality with your city, even the kind of doofuses who are not excellent in your city, but that's not really where the formation is going on at a certain point
1: for the people that are most excellent they have to kind of leave the community and as proactive. you get
0: yeah. as you get better at this you have to draw away into a private sphere uh and so the you know at the at the peak of the life of virtue you're going to have these friends and you're going to have a small group of friends in fact he says the sort of ideal number is going to be two and you're working together thinking through the problems of life and living um and and growing in virtue as you do that
1: that's fascinating. I tweeted a few weeks ago that the 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 healthy adult man should never have more than five real friends. So I, and people thought I was crazy, but a uh, little, little did I even realize I I, I might have been onto something. It was, there.
0: it was way too many friends that you were talking about, Justin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. Fascinating. So one hypothesis that comes to me listening to you is that it almost sounds as if Aristotelian ethics kind of, kind of sets up this, this worldview that the Christian revelation really just kind of slots into perfectly and maybe it's specifically tell me if I'm right or wrong or if I'm possibly barking up an interesting tree here specifically around this this concept of friendship which perhaps you could you could tell us more about if you'd like but it seems to me like friendship with human beings on earth is always going to be very limited even even the best human beings you can find even those those two best friends for you know the most virtuous men out there who have small tight-knit groups of only the most excellent peers necessarily it's going to still be limited. You're never going to have a really pro fully perfectly oriented friendship. And so it almost feels as if the appearance of Christ is almost like the appearance of the perfect friend. Is there something going on here? Or what would you say to that?
0: I mean, I would say so. And, and this is the subject of most of my research at the moment, which is to say, I, I think Aristotle works himself in, uh, into, um, into a corner, because he recognizes what he really needs is this really excellent, super excellent friend. Uh, And he wants to, like a truly human, happy human life has to sort of be the fulfillment of our our deepest and most natural desires, and uh, the perfection of our potentials. Um, But of course, that doesn't describe anyone, you know, it just like, and the problems are, one, he says, well, if I really love my friend, I should want him to be a god. Two, if I was really perfecting my potentials, I would become a god. Three, uh, if I if I, if I I let my friend become a god and I fail to become one, I don't get to be my, his friend anymore. And that's going to be really tragic. Um, further, I'm not going to be able to become a god because gods are so distinctly other than what I am. What's actually going to happen is my friend and I are both going to die. And so the, the problem of death and the problem of deification of the self and the friend are all issues that he sort of raises. And then it's like, but well, we got to move on. It's like, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, he doesn't have a solution for them. And I think in in Christianity, you know, there's a beautiful icon, which I, I hope you'll find and throw it up there. I can send it to you called the friend of Christ icon. And it is this uh, amazing image from the ancient Christian church where you have Jesus with his arm around this guy and he's holding the whole of scripture in one hand and this guy is just holding one page of scripture it's all he knows because he's just such a doofus right and i always relate to this i'm like what do i really know like i've read a lot of aristotle but I'm not really a bible scholar you know like i know a lot of people know a lot more about the bible than i do but i know like you know john 3 16 and um and you know and he's blessing the world like as jesus would want him to he's he's trying to sort of live it out and be excellent and jesus you know i uh, in, one way of thinking about God is, and I heard this from a, from a priest in uh, Assisi, which is where St. Francis was. And so, you know, like, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I'm hashtag not all Roman Catholics. You know, I've, I've got some friends there, um, yourself among them. And he said, you know, we when we think about God, we always have problems because we, we say the word father and everybody has a father. Most people's fathers, uh, you know, many people's fathers have failed seriously. And everyone's fathers have failed at least a little bit. And the reason is, humans are limited and they only have so much time, right? I'm focused on this, I'm focused on this, I'm focused on this. I, you know, I have a brother, my dad could never focus on both of us equally all the time. It's just impossible. But God's not like that, right? To God, each of us is an only child. And that's like a beautiful image that God can actually, he, he, he has a body that's shareable. And that's what you see in the Eucharistic celebration, that we can each participate and have, Christ's body for our very own. It's the one body that's not like any other body. And it's the one body that's unlike any other body, isn't going to die. And it's the one body that unlike any other body is deified. And it's the one body, unlike any other body, which chooses to bring us into its perfect life. And so I I do think my basic argument is that, is that the solution to the problems that Aristotle finds himself in, he, he articulates the natural aspect just perfectly. Uh, but he just, he, he didn't count on and nobody was there to tell him about the, the beauty of grace and, and the friendship of Christ.
1: There is a part of the Nicomachean ethics about the intellectual virtues. You talked about kind of the main virtues that most people have heard a thing or two about. Tell us about the intellectual virtues. What is the role of the intellectual life in, in ethics?
0: Yeah, you know, so when when he he mentions the intellectual virtues more as an aside. So he mostly spends his time talking about the um the the moral virtues. And the intellectual virtues are are things that people have deduced more so. So when you hear people talking extensively about the intellectual virtues, those tend to be things people have deduced from reading Aristotle and thinking about the way the Nicomachean ethics must relate to all of these other books that he has like like the categories or whatever. So you know, learning to think rationally is an intellectual virtue and it it is sort of a choice, right? But it's a choice that's unlike, you know, should I, should I punch the guy who cut me off in traffic or not? Right. (laughs) That's like a, it's a, that's a much more like mastering your, your biological self. And, um, you know, learning mathematics, it requires intellectual virtue. It requires a certain clear and consistent thinking It requires a studiousness, a consistency, a focus. um, And it requires submitting your mind to postulates of, of reason so that you can make yourself conducive for learning, really.
1: Okay. I do think there are parts of the philosophy, though, that have to do with, you know, kind of how we order the contemplative life with the practical life. And isn't there a kind of, um a higher quality to contemplation there's some, there's something about this isn't there?
0: Yeah yeah so so the the practical life relative to the contemplative life the the um, the life of action and the life of theory uh, you know is is another way of talking about this problem which one's more important and like I said he spends most of his his book talking about the life of action and the reason why he does that is because he thinks it's not that important um, but, as most things in life, it's the unimportant stuff that trips you up and and sort of destroys your ability to be happy. If you manage your, like money is really stupid and sub rational in a lot of ways, but if you don't learn to master your relationship to money, uh, either by not learning how to spend the right amount, or not learning how to earn the right amount, or not learning how to give it and be friendly to people, you know if if you screw that relationship up, you're going to screw your whole life up because you're not going to be able to do anything else with your life. You're going to spend your your time in debtor's jail, or the IRS is going to be you know, searching you down. Everybody's going to hate you because you're a miser, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, his theory is that, uh, when I said virtue, virtue is a habit of choosing the mean between two vices. Ultimately, you've got the moral virtue. That's moral virtue. You've got the moral virtue when you no longer have to make those choices anymore. And so relative to courage, like, I don't have to think about being courageous anymore. I've just trained myself so that when I'm in a situation where courage is required, I just habitually do it and I can move on. And I'm not sitting there like, oh, what should I do? Should I, you know, if you're, if you're habitually doing that with all of your moral choices throughout the day, then the next question is what, what can you do with your mind and what it does is it frees up your mind so that you can just think about reality. And he doesn't have a lot of names. Like I said, for the particular virtues that you're going to use there. Uh, the way he has a lot of names for the moral virtues but he does say very clearly that that's where the good stuff is where you can just you're free to think and see reality as it really is um, it's a little bit like you know if we had to as I'm always trying to do if you're trying to squeeze the Nicomachean ethics back into the platonic corpus and ask yourself what the hell is he talking about you know how how does this relate to Plato what he's talking about is how do you get out of the cave right the people in the cave are sort of trapped about money thinking about oh am i being courageous i have to sort of think about how much is moderation required here if you master all the moral virtues so that they're habitually being practiced then you're free to just think about reality you can get up and out of the cave and just see reality for what it is and theor theoretical life theoria just comes from the word to see so you're learning how to see i'll give you a practical example from my life because aristotle would love practical examples I have a, I have a tradition on my birthday where I go on this walk that's about 20 miles with my friends and then at the end we drink beer and have dinner and uh I do the same walk every year and this year a buddy who's only been to three or four of them I've been doing this for about a decade said why do you do the same walk every year and I said the reason is because by doing the same walk every year I don't have to make any decisions I know every turn in the walk I know exactly where I'm headed there's no th- I never think about the walk itself at all and I can spend the entire twenty miles, which takes most of the day, just talking to my buddies, and that conversation, right, is a, is a, is a, is a part of that theoretical life, is a part of the contemplative life of just getting to think about reality and being free from the material concerns to engage in the eternal contemplation of being, and that's the good stuff, as far as Aristotle is concerned.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. So it's almost like you're you're constantly mastering your habits so much that. All of the cognitive overhead and even emotional overhead of living a good life, being ethical, making the right decisions, doing the right thing, all of that the cost of doing that almost goes to zero on a, on a daily basis, and no matter what comes up it's It's all mostly automatic. you're not spending you know cognition or, or emotional cycles trying to figure that stuff out. So in a way this actually I think could resonate with a lot of people today who are very into you know kind of like life hacking and uh, you know, self-improvement, so. right?
0: But but it's it's an automation. The key is it's an automation you chose, right? And it can't be. It's. I think a lot of these people want to sort of take something and self-impose it on themselves, and they feel therefore very constrained. I think a lot of people when they get into the like maximizing their their lifestyles or whatever, they take somebody else's rules and they just kind of impose them. And a lot of people accuse Aristotle of doing that. That is not my understanding of Aristotle. He he's rather wants you to sort of think through the problems and and come up with solutions that. Fit with what you are, how you showed up in reality, and, and where you showed
1: up. So the Nicomachean Ethics is not a handbook that you can read, apply his suggestions, and you just like have corrected your life ethically. It, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, at least if my life is anything to judge by, the answer is no. But you know, maybe it worked that way for some other people.
1: <laughs> right, but the reason the reason being that w- the the way to act correctly in different times and places in different personal contexts. It's going to be very dependent on questions such as, what are you naturally good at? What are you naturally bad at? What are your particular temptations? What are your particular, you know, and and what's
0: the sphere of action that you sort of were planted inside of, right? I mean, you know, if you're, if you're not a citizen of the United States, certain things are not going to be available to you in in the way that other things are and, and et cetera,
1: et cetera. Right, right. Okay. That's great. That's great. So it, it kind of does lend itself possibly to a kind of modern life hacking mentality of kind of optimizing optimizing for a great life, but the devil's in the details of deciding precisely what parameters need attention. And there's really no banister for that. There, that's a kind of very singular uh, inquiry for each person. I, I,
0: I think that's right. And I actually really liked what you said about you know if you really nail this most of the decision making in your life is automated. And that's actually, uh, from my experience, extremely healthy. And 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 there's so much data that backs this up, right? Why do I'm, I'm assuming they have Trader Joe's where you live, which is sure. like this bespoke yeah. grocery store where like, you know, they only have like one thing of toothpaste. It's like the anti grocery store, because if you go to the big grocery store, like Fegmans or Vons or Safeway or whatever, there's like 80 different toothpaste. And you're like, all I want is toothpaste. I have so much anxiety, right? Modernity is filled with so much anxiety because we're like, which toothpaste do I want to have whitening or like, you know, do I need to get rid of my plaque problem? Um, whereas you go to Trader Joe's and you have this real pacifying experience, I think, because it's not just the Hawaiian outfits, because you like, there's just the one thing and it's good. And you walk away and you're like, I'm done. You don't have to choose. Um, you know, choosing is important and it's hard and we all know that. And so sort of think about your choice once and like, make your choice develop the habit of doing that one thing, and then just trust your previous self that you like made the right choice and move on. And Aristotle can help you do that.
1: Okay. That's great. That's fascinating. So why don't we jump forward a little bit to more contemporary times? I want to talk about how this Aristotelian tradition develops over time. You had mentioned uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, which was surprising to me. I I didn't know that Um, she played an important role in kind of reintroducing an Aristotelian frame of mind could you, I know that she was a student of, of Wittgenstein. Could you kind of take us to that time and place and just just kind of situate that a bit? Like what was the Aristotelian implication that that she was kind of inserting into things? And how does it fit into, you know, philosophy at, at that time?
0: Yeah, so uh, obviously philosophy in, in that era is, particularly in the English-speaking world, is very much analytic. So if you're familiar with the distinction between analytic and continental philosophy and uh the analytic philosophical tradition is mostly thinks that philosophy is really just about logic philosophy is about logic and you know not coincidentally aristotle was the father of logic so you know plug for aristotle i'm teaching a course on aristotle's logical texts uh this spring so you know feel free to plug that and you know sign up for my course I'm trying to make some money off this oh sure um, that's
1: an, that's an open to the public one i'll put a link in the show notes
0: yeah 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 i think it's a couple hundred dollars if people wanted to to jump in um Now, it's fine to do logic, but logic is only a part of philosophy. And they knew that, and so I don't want to sort of talk the analytics down. uh, But what they, what they were doing when they did ethics was mostly utilitarianism. And so, you know, the utilitarian ethical tradition is really a a birth of the English philosophical tradition. Um, And so, you know, like guys like Bentham, are are doing you know these these consequentialist theories of of how can you maximize you know whatever and and they come up with all and they are aware of and and enjoying i think uh you know coming up with problems with their own ethical systems like what about a utility monster that that's like a fun wikipedia rabbit hole your listeners can go down um what Anscombe does when when she shows up and and so she was a student of Wittgenstein she actually had a a famous debate with c.s lewis uh for the the more christian audience out there um when she when she shows up on the scene she says you know you've sort of abandoned the search for wisdom which was the understanding of the platonic aristotelian tradition but in doing so you sort of have misunderstood what they were up to uh because what they're trying to do is think about the sphere of practical activity uh and all of these things which are human goods but they're not like maximizable and she does all this in a very analytic frame and, and, you know, you can go find her writings and I, I find them to be basically intolerable. I don't like reading them, but, um, it reinserts and forces people to rethink. She basically says, you misunderstood Aristotle. He's not talking about what you thought he was talking about. He's talking about the stuff that you, that is real and that you actually have not been talking about for a long time. And then you have people like Philip afoot and, uh, most famously Alistair McIntyre, who kind of come along behind. And, and really start saying, yeah, we have to sort of think through Aristotle. And then the Thomists, the kind of 20th century Thomists see this stuff going on in the philosophical tradition and you end up getting this synthesis, um, you know, into the middle and late 20th century where the study of Aristotelian, Aristotelianism period just kind of comes back into vogue and is still going strong, I, I would say, uh, into the contemporary era.
1: Right. Okay. So let's double click on that. So Alistair McIntyre, who's a contemporary thinker, I think he's still alive, right? And I think he, he's still alive, but you know, yeah. just barely. Regardless, he's he's of our time and yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of you know one, one of the heaviest hitters, I would say, in in this tradition today. He's a Thomist. So maybe start with, say a few words about what is Alistair McIntyre doing? And then when you kind of explain that a little bit, Uh, we can maybe bring that back down to what even is Thomism.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure he's a Thomist. Like, I don't... Oh, okay, maybe Maybe I'm wrong. That was my impression of reading him. He was a Marxist. I don't think he has a PhD, first of all. And so I love love the, like, you know, people who are doing academic stuff. I I think this is actually how I found out about you. So just to praise you to your own listeners, you know, like, I think any uh, genuine intellectual in the contemporary world, because of the way academia is, has to basically think that academia is not worth their time and you know like p- there are precursors to those people now and so you know i, I would count you as that I've, i can you know talk about other people as well um, uh, and so you have a real genuine intellectual project in part because you know that 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 kind of thing isn't happening in academia which doesn't mean you can't be in academia it just does mean if you're there you have to be like oh this is so stupid you know <laughs> um, <laughs> and and alistair mcintyre was sort of there before any of us Um, you know, didn't have a PhD much like CS Lewis, uh, you know, and then, and was a Marxist and it was through his like thinking and trying to puzzle out reality from the Marxist perspective that he kind of stumbled into this Aristotelianism and then says, you know, we have to, we have to rethink, uh, what's going on here. And his famous book is called after virtue. And so right there, you can see, he sort of, he runs into the virtue ethics people, and recognizes there's something here that's missing from most of contemporary analysis of life and his book after virtue is a is a thinking through of what happens if you don't have the category of virtue so it's kind of a diagnostic manual for what's gone on in life and then his other works i, I would say are, are further expl explications of you know what what aristotle or the aristotelian position would say about reality and so um you know his his got the one on um like who's justice and which rationality, you know, if you, if you begin from a consequentialist perspective, you're going to come up with a completely different way of thinking about reality than if you think about it from an Aristotelian perspective, because rationality itself is going to mean different things to these people. So there's almost no talking to one another, or, or if you do, you know, it gets very contentious very quickly. I'm sure you've got some like consequentialist listeners, some Marxist listeners who've like heard the things coming out of my mouth. and are like, pulling their hair out with rage you know
1: no well it's it's fascinating because especially on the Marxism point you mentioned that uh McIntyre comes out of this kind of Marxist tradition uh you know in a way and but Marx in a way has a certain Aristotelian strand which which is very fascinating because you know Marx is very especially you know the the humanistic part of the Marxian project you know is all about flourishing and he and he does have this kind of investment in a certain vision of human nature and what humans require and will you know find a way to get for themselves you know of course in his model it's it's through you know class conflict and and the historical dialectic and all of that but but there is deeply baked into it uh and almost you know it requires a a kind of strong investment in a conception of human flourishing which is kind of interesting
0: there is a conception of human flourishing uh but it is it is um a conception of human flourishing which is universalized to everyone and therefore i would say from an aristotelian perspective you'd say it excludes flourishing because flourishing is about virtue and virtue is about excellence and excellence is is unique it's it's craggledy it's not universalizable
1: okay sure sure that's Fair critique, of course. Um, now, going back to McIntyre. so yeah, in, in my you know very limited reading of, of McIntyre's works, uh, which I've been kind of exploring in the past few months, I understand him as 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 a Thomist. At least in some regards, he certainly mentions Thomism. Um, but whether one agrees with that or not, whether I'm even great about that or not, just talk a little bit about uh, Thomism and and how does that fit? In, you know how. How does that fit into the Aristotelian tradition? How does it depart from it? What is unique about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say he's a social thinker uh, as opposed to Thomas, just because it, mm-hmm. it's not clear he's doing the kind of stuff that most Thomas do. Um, you know, to- Thomism is the people who name their philosophical tradition after Thomas Aquinas. And so tendency this mean, t- ten- tendency is this means you've studied uh, under someone who is a Thomist, right. Or who's doing sort of serious deep study of Thomas Aquinas. You know, I've studied a fair amount of Thomas Aquinas. I've even studied it with some people who've studied, you know, very extensively. I still wouldn't call myself a Thomist. Um, and, uh, and, and so Thomas Aquinas is famous because the point at which he comes into Western Christian thought, um, the church has mostly been a platonic project at at its philosophical level right so everybody agrees that grace is perfecting nature or whatever but the the nature the the sort of philosophical substrata of the church is platonic and so augustine is like the big you know heavy hitter doing that kind of stuff um and actually the 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 catholic church has sort of said you're not supposed to study aristotle so that that was the official position aristotle and the aristotelian texts themselves were not even really that available in the west they were mostly preserved by eastern christians um and uh, and some muslim scholars but the eastern christians are the ones who sort of keep and copy the texts mostly um even though they're not thinking in in aristotelian categories necessarily in the renaissance these texts make their way back into the west and start getting translated into latin um and and thomas aquinas is the first person who sort of takes that system, which was a little bit edgy, it's like not something he was supposed to be doing and starts trying to think through Christian problems using Aristotle's way of thinking. And the first major breakthrough that he has, the thing that makes sort of sets him apart from everybody else is that he makes this distinction that God is the only being whose essence is the same as his existence. Um, whereas for all other beings, they have an essence and they have an existence, but those two things are distinct from one another because their existence is contingent upon God. Um, whereas, uh, God's existence is not contingent upon anything he, he, he sort of applies Aristotle all over the place, writes a lot of commentaries on Aristotle. Eventually the church comes around and, uh, and, and has been a major force in Western philosophy ever since.
1: Well, it sounds like that kind of logical style of Aristotle's is, is getting picked up here. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes.
0: Um, and also, also an intense interest on, on kind of, I would say things as they are, uh, is a sort of safe way of trying to contrast Aristotle to Plato. You know, Plato tends to be thinking more of things as they should be uh, thinking about about God in the heavens, uh, as opposed to thinking about the creation that God's made as it presents itself to us.
1: Yeah, that's it's it's actually really interesting to think about what you just said, the, the idea of things as they are, because in a weird way, it's like, you know, non-Christians or atheists today, you know, especially the kind of sophisticated cosmopolitan rationalist types will look at. Christians or, you know, virtue ethicists or Aristotelians and say like, oh, you know, their heads are in the clouds, right? You know, we the rationalists are looking at, you know, the real concrete stuff, the suffering and the, and the, the actual, you know, pros and cons of various public policy decisions. We're the only ones kind of taking seriously, you know, the, the, the utility in the world and, and how this is distributed and managed. But in a way, when you're like doing all this moral calculus around these like far-off entities and these like uh, kind of absurd extrapolations like over time, your head is in the clouds, really, in a way. And and to just actually pay attention to like, you know, the habits of one's everyday life as kind of the core substrate of of ethical being, you know, in in, in a way, it's actually much more realistic and grounded and and empirical even. Um, and, and this is, I feel like this is kind of coming through with, with what you're talking about, whether it's Thomism and this kind of like logical analysis of, of what is, but even, you know, mentioning someone like Anscombe and that kind of Wittgensteinian moment of, of, uh, that's kind of really where the continental and the analytical traditions really start to kind of split off. You know, um, it, it it does kind of, I feel like this is a kind of very hidden, very, very badly misunderstood not really understood at all kind of fact or or aspect of this whole aristotelian christian ethical tradition is that in, in a way it is the most laser focused only on that which is real in front of us as human beings
0: absolutely if sam bankman Fried had spent uh several years thinking about how to behave excellently a lot of people would still have their money instead he spent his time thinking about this like pie in the sky utopian fantasy land that he was like planning to build with his fake little bitcoins that he didn't even have you know it's like um, and you know I'm not trying to say that 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 the like tech or whatever isn't real sure like some of this stuff is real but he had a crazy theory right like a like an actual pie in the sky crazy theory about how this was all gonna work out and it didn't work out that way and you know maybe like what Aristotle would say is focus on the behaviors that you're making into habits and you know you're gonna you're gonna turn into a better person. I had a wrestling coach just to make this extremely practical, because I think virtue ethics is the kind of thing which once you see it, you kind of see it everywhere. Um, And so, you know, I had a wrestling coach not a super well educated dude. He was like an army ranger, he was a very good wrestler. Um, And he ran this wrestling camp. His name was Jay Robinson. And uh, I went to his wrestling camp and one of the things that he would make every single kid from 14 to 18 who was there and I went twice, he would, he would sort of look him in the eye and be like, you're gonna die. What are three things that you want people to say at your graveside? And you were like, Oh man, ah, you had to write these three things down and turn them into him, you know, and then, and like that, that's powerful. And that's virtue ethics because organizing your life in such a way that if you say, like, I want people to say that I'm generous, you know, I want people to say that I'm kind. It's like, okay, well now you have to start doing stuff that's generous and kind, or that ain't going to happen kid. (laughs) Right. And you end up making a story for your life um, that that is generative, right, and life giving and, and beautiful.
1: Right, right. Well, that's that's lovely. And I maybe don't have a better way to close out this than to let that be the final word, except that I want to hear about the book coming out, which and probably by the time people are listening to this on the podcast, your book will have already come out. The publication date is February 9th, I believe. Uh, The book is called The Shining Human Creature. And this book is about a, a thinker named Thomas Traherne, who's a very mysterious kind of underrated genius in the Christian tradition. And I think people who listen to this podcast love, you know, the obscure... Uh, unrecognized geniuses of of history so i think this will be actually very intriguing to people tell us a little bit about thomas traherne before you go I'm, I'm very curious to learn more
0: yeah so so thomas traherne was a. if anybody does know him they probably know him as like like the b-list version of some of the metaphysical poets so, so john don is kind of the most famous poet from the 17th century english poetry and there's a lot of people who are writing in a kind of similar style and Thomas Traherne's maybe like five to ten people down on that list, and so maybe some of your English majors out there like read a poem by him. Uh, and we're recording on Burns Night, so you know, happy Happy Burns Night to our Scottish listeners. Uh, I like to be culturally sensitive to these things. Um, and what, but what what Traherne actually spent his life doing was as a pastor. So he was a pastor in rural England during the English Civil War when he grew up, and then afterwards during the Restoration. Uh, 17th century Oxford trained, got three degrees from Oxford, really smart guy. Um, and during his lifetime, he really only wrote one book under his own name and was completely forgotten at his death. Um, another book came out right after his death that nobody read basically. And it was called the Christian ethics. And then, you know, over a hundred years later, hundreds of years later, uh, this guy finds a couple of manuscripts in a wheelbarrow. That was supposedly, the story goes, about to be like sent to the dump, buys them for pennies, and it turned and then like they try to sleuth out like whose papers were these, and it was Thomas Traherne's, And that became his poetry and his centuries of meditation. And those are the two works that he's most famous for. But his real masterpiece from when he was alive, the the thing that he was trying to put his clearest and most systematic uh philosophy into was this book called Christian Ethics. And um it is a, a Christian virtue ethics text in the Protestant tradition. So most people tend to think that you've got like, you know, the smart Catholics over there and the like based Orthodox people over there. And then you've got like lame evangelicals, you know, running around, not knowing what to do with themselves. Uh, but here you've got this guy who is a pretty low church guy. He was just like your normal average English peasant who happened to be really smart and got educated, read Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and stuff. And then said, how do we put this together with Christianity? And so I was handed this project by somebody um, to to try to modernize this and bring out a critical edition, and and I'm doing it in four volumes. And I did it mostly because it's not actually something I'm a specialist in. Like I'm not a 17th century scholar in any way, um, but his life and project is so parallel to what I'm trying to do in my academic life of like reading Aristotle, thinking about what this has to teach modern people. What does it have to teach Christian people? How does it fit with Christianity? And, you know, you find this guy who like already did that project in the 1700s and like no one is reading him. No one is even aware of this book. Uh, I just couldn't say no. And so I've been working on it for a couple of years now. And, and the next, you know, as you said, the first volume is coming out this month and then another one should come out in, in about six months.
1: And what would you say is the main thing that he contributes to this tradition of Aristotelian Christianity? Like what's what's most unique or characteristic about Traherne?
0: Yeah, the the most fascinating thing about him is how much he loves the material reality that we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's
1: kind of ecstatic, isn't it? It's kind of filled with actual like zeal and joy. You can kind of feel the joy like dripping from the words from my short acquaintance with it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, he, uh, you know, and so I titled it The Shining Human Creature, even though that's not a phrase that he ever wrote, but it feels like a, uh, having gotten to know him pretty well, it's a safe, uh, you know, approximation of what his thinking is because he says humans are creatures like all other creatures, right? Like we have a certain relatedness to dogs and and rocks and stuff because we're created by God. And so we have, we share a common creator and, and at, at its best, these things, you know, were designed in their intention, in their formation to shine. And, you know, he, he loved life and did not let like Aristotle would have wanted, he did not let all of the like, the the like normal dirt and grime of life get him down uh he apparently was extremely generous he he died without very much money um and and you know loved loved the people around him and, and loved his life and I, I think that's what you should want if you know like that, that's happiness you know the dude seemed happy um so it's like one of those moments where you like somebody who believes in what they're smoking or whatever and uh you know it's that's there's nice to run into
1: yeah definitely i haven't read the whole book but i did spend a few hours with it this morning and the main impression i took from it was this guy is just like giddy on he's like giddy on his own ideas basically and 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 i love that right it's like uh this deep the impression i get is this kind of like deep devout kind of uh inner conviction in god and 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 kind of the just the ultimate justice of the world and you can kind of feel it in his language the guy is like yeah he, he's he's smoking what he's selling
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, i would just put it this way he's making logical arguments inside of beautiful prose and that's really rare to run into as somebody who reads a lot of books
1: Nice. Yeah. It, it, no, it is rare. It, it stood out. That was the first thing that stood out to me. So um, it's a fascinating project, and uh, thanks for sharing that. So people can, you know, go check that out if they want to. I'll put a link in the show notes for sure. It should be available for order now. And if you just have a few more minutes, I, I, I'd be remiss not to ask a little bit about the Dalvinent Institute, um, just because sure. it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think, you know, it's it's in in its own way, you know, uh, one of many experiments going on with education today. So tell us about like what is what exactly is it? How does it work? I think people might be interested to know.
0: Yeah. So the Davenant Institute advances and renews Christian wisdom for the contemporary church, particularly if you have money, that's what we do. Uh, you know, that's like the, that's, that's the cell line or whatever, uh, the mission statement, but we really do believe that, uh, it, honestly, it is a project that was founded about a decade ago by some guys who were in academia or, or just kind of finishing grad school and realized academia is basically over uh you know we're in like a self-imposed period of the dark ages that are kind of coming back I really do believe that and therefore what are you going to do like where are the Irish monasteries you know from the actual dark ages that like preserved the the like spirit and actual material texts of learning that that had sustained western life for so long um and it's a for
1: profit or how does it work financially
0: yeah yeah so we're it's a nonprofit um and you know we so we do raise money. we have a house in South Carolina that has a really extensive library um and it's like it's actually on uh we don't normally use this as a selling point, but I think your listeners will be intrigued. It was a y two k prepper house that we bought um and so it really is like capable of being off the grid for a period of time if wow. if you know things come to it and do people live um,
1: there or no?
0: Yeah, we have, uh, we own two houses. And there's another house that's adjacent that the president of the Institute lives on
1: um, and, and you meetups there, like what goes on yeah, there on a day to day. Yep.
0: We have a scholar in residence at the main house. And then huh. there's kind of a host family in the other house. And uh, we, we run conferences there. Uh, we, we teach classes that are in person that we run there. Uh, but then and there's also that's like the intellectual hub of the broader network. So we run conferences kind of locally all over the place. We've had a few in the UK. We've had a, all over the United States. I think we have one in LA coming, uh, this fall. And then we also have a magazine that we publish called Ad Fantes, and we're trying to do, you know, very serious thinking about reality, but from the Protestant perspective. So we are explicitly a, a Protestant, you know, tend to be safe to say conservative Protestant group of guys, uh, mostly guys. I mean, women are welcome and there are women there, but truth is like, that's who we are. Um, and the, and then during the pandemic, actually, we were running a few classes, just like off the books online, uh, on zoom. And that was one of the fastest growing pieces of what we did. And so right before that was right before the pandemic. And so like, right before the pandemic started, we were like, we should have a college. We should just open a graduate school for people who kind of like want seminary, but you know, don't care about the accoutrements or whatever. And some of it is in person. They have to come out to the house. Some, some of it's online. So we we launched that um, and it's been growing leaps and bounds. And actually, and it, just and accredited? this
1: accredited.
0: Yeah, so it is not accredited. Okay. Uh, and in part, it's because we really think that the accreditation system is part of the problem. So we, we think it's basically a corrosive system in the United States at the moment. Sure. Um, but we have a we have agreements where like our classes can count for stuff if you want to take it to some other university. I see. Um, we can kind of drift off of that. But you can get your master's degree from us for about $10,000. It takes about two years. And we make a deal with our students that if you get your degree with us uh, and you go on to get a PhD in a field that we've trained you for, we'll give you all of your money back. Huh. Um, and, you know, in part it's because we really want these, this sort of learning, we've seen too many people go get their PhD, and they're in so much debt at the end of it, they have to go sell real estate. There's nothing wrong with selling real estate. I've got family members that sell real estate. Sure, But if that training is supposed to be valuable for the sake of the world in the future, like you need to actually be free to go do it, right? The liberal arts are supposed to be free.
1: That's a fascinating model. I never quite heard that I don't think. And so if you're it's, you're not accredited, but you can still give out master's degrees. That's cool.
0: Yes. We, we just, I, I always say I, I judged accreditation and found it wanting. And so we're <laughs>
1: proudly self-accredited. Well, you're, um, you're preaching to the choir on that. I have no questions or <laughs> I, I have no qualms about that. I just didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was an option that you could give out master's degrees without being accredited. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have, um, you know, we, we have, Lawyers who looked into it to make sure that we weren't like violating some sort of law or whatever, and it turns out we're not. Um, and we have an internal audit system, like, we have very close relationships. Most of these guys teach at other universities, so like, they're all above boards. We keep really close documentation in case anybody wants to check what you're doing. And actually, but this just this week, and so we'll all announce it here to your members. We now are a PhD granting institution. So, you know, what did you do during the pandemic, Grandpa? I founded a PhD granting institution for higher education, <laughs> and that is accredited by the king of england
1: what <laughs> how does that work <laughs> all right i got to hear i got to hear this how do, how do, how do you negotiate that how does that come about
0: yeah so it's it's basically through an agreement that we have with union college um union theological college in northern ireland and so the, i think there's something like seven or eight institutions in the united kingdom that have what's called a royal charter which which and then all other institutions of higher education in the uk are granted their accreditation by those colleges or universities. And so the it's called the Royal Charter gets extended too, right so like some other lesser college in Northern Ireland goes to the you know Union College. And it's like, can we be accredited? And they're like, Okay, you can be okay. And uh, we went to Union College. And we were like, you know, we want to have PhD students. Can we just like, do it under your Royal Charter? And you know, after some negotiations, and I you know, they were like, Yeah, this sounds really good. You guys are great. So um, wow. yeah, so our master's awesome. degree is not but I figure like, if our PhD is you know, you can probably trust our master's
1: degree. Uh, If our (laughs)
0: PhD is good enough for the King of England, you know, it's our master's degree is good enough for you.
1: Those are fascinating details. That's a a really interesting, cool model. And thanks for sharing some of the inner workings of how the Davenant Institute functions. Um, That's fascinating. I'm certainly, you know, very interested in and very supportive of all such, you know, creative ways of trying to re-engineer these things nowadays. So I think a lot of people listening to this we uh absolutely want, and i'm, a, I'm a huge fan of
0: your you know your other life group and the and the things that you're doing in sort of parallel spaces
1: well thank you sir colin thank you very much for your time i appreciate you being here this was an this is an absolute master class on aristotelian ethics pretty much exactly what i wanted and i think a lot of people will be uh you know very edified to have listened through this conversation so thank you very much for your time
0: awesome thanks for having me on justin
1: all right i'll put a link to your new book in the show notes and to everything else we talked about take it easy colin appreciate you take care Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.